Oh, what a remarkable piece of work. Hmm? One of a kind. Unique. You are um, the crown jewel of my collection. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 52 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we have a very special guest, Rich Handley, contributing writer to Hero Collector and editor of Eagle Moss's Star Trek graphic novel collection, which is going on 140 volumes, reprinting as many Star Trek comics as possible from, well, gold key to the present. And that's what we're going to discuss today, the collection what work goes into it, and what Rich has learned along the way, if anything. Welcome to the Fire and Water uh, Studios, Rich. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so, so you've, I mean, you've spilled a lot of ink about Star Trek comics. Pro- yeah, I've probably uh, spilled more ink than most people have purchased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, you have, uh, not only, like, obviously you're writing introductions for these books, for some of these books, but you, you've written a lot of articles about Star Trek comics, that either at Hero Collector, or they're in collections, and that's not the only things you, you've written about either. So you're like a pop culture pundit. I'll accept that title gladly. Thank you. <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, years ago, I, I used to write for Star Trek Communicator magazine. I wrote a few things also for Star Trek magazine. But I was a regular columnist and a reporter for Star Trek Communicator um, and also for its sister magazine, Star Wars Insider, which they were sister magazines at the time. And um, since then, I, I, I consulted on GIT Corp's um, DVD-ROM collection of, of all the comics. And, uh, and I've done other stuff as well. I guess this would have been like, I guess maybe 2018. Whenever it was that the graphic novel collection was announced, I decided to just offer my services as a consultant. So I reached out to Eagle Moss and said... You know, just so you know, if you ever have any questions, are you doing this amazing project? It sounds like you're trying to reprint everything, and I happen to own every single Star Trek comic to date. So if you have any questions, feel free to to reach out to me, and I explain what my background was. And um, amazingly, I heard back from Ben Robinson, uh, who, who's the editor there, uh, immediately. He asked me for advice on what should be collected and what shouldn't. And of course, my advice was collect everything. <laughs> There's no should <laughs> collect everything. But it all depended on how long the, the series ran, whether they could pull that off. And in, in short order, Ben started asking me to write the intro, some of the introductions to the book. Uh, Robert Greenberger and James Swallow were also writing some. But over time, most of them ended up transitioning to me. So I was writing most of them. And then the um, the editor stepped down uh, as of volume 72. And much to my you know great excitement, I was very honored to be asked to take over the editing. And uh, so from 72 to 140, I was the editor on that series. And along the way, I, I proposed a book idea to, to Ben, um, which I, I don't want to get into too much of the topic of the book yet because it's not announced, although I guess I just technically just announced it. But he suggested that while writing it, maybe I should write a weekly column. And that's where the weekly column, Star Trek Comics Weekly, came from, which discusses the history of Star Trek comics from gold key to the present chronologically but not from the standpoint people usually do. People will, will review them or go back, wasn't this cool and so forth. But my standpoint is comic books are an amazing medium for producing prequels, sequels, and tie-ins to stuff that you see in the, in the episodes and the films. So instead of reviewing, for example, a gold key issue with the Guardian of Forever, I will discuss how that issue connects to City on the Edge of Forever. And so I've been going chronologically through all of the comics and – pointing out this connects to this episode, this is a prequel to this, this is a sequel to this, this reimagines this, and so forth. And um, I'm sure I'm overlooking stuff, but that's the basic gist of it. Quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I've done some of that work as well independently, not at that level at all. Uh, I've also reviewed most Star Trek, most American Star Trek 
comics on Siskoi's blog of geekery, but very cursorily. And it's fun to find all these references and connected to you know the rest of the world. You know, been my great love. When, going back to when I was a teenager, reading these, is I would read something and go. Wait, I know what this connects to. And that was long pre-internet, you know, so I had to go consulting books to look this stuff up. And it, it, it made me very trivia-minded when it came to the comics, which is really my first love with uh, with Star Trek. Before we actually get into the meat of it, although I feel like we've already started, each guest, first time they come on, has to go through that little questionnaire we have for them, which tells people listening who they're, they're getting acquainted with during the episode. Okay. So how did you get into Star Trek proper uh, rather than just the comics? What, what does it mean to you? Why is it important in your life? I was born in 1968, so the show was still on the air, and my mother was a first-generation Trekker. So because of this, she would watch it while I was sitting in my baby in my playpen. So I, I can technically say I've been watching it since I was born, but obviously at that point I didn't know what the heck I was watching. And but I grew up with a person who watched the reruns starting in the early 70s when they did. So I was a little kid. And got indoctrinated, I guess you could say, by my science fiction mom. So from an early age, it was something we enjoyed together along with Planet of the Apes and other topics. But um, I came to really appreciate it for more than just Captain Kirk beats up the lizard guy, which is probably what I was enjoying at age six. <laughs> and uh, so f from that point on, I, I, I became a major fan and uh, I started reading the books and comics and the uh, – in the 80s, and then worked my way back to pick up what I'd missed. So I, Next Generation pulled me in so much. I was so excited to see the, the franchise continue, and I've just never let up since then. There you go. Do you have a favorite iteration of the show? You know, it's funny. I, I often say when I'm asked this, my favorite iteration is the one I happen to be watching because I can find something to enjoy about every version of Star Trek. But it's undeniable that there are some that I prefer over others. I would say that my favorite in terms of the quality of storytelling and acting consistency would be Deep Space Nine. But my first love was the original series uh, and connected to it, the animated series. So Kirk's crew will always hold a very special place in my heart. And the next generation matters to me a lot because it, it rejuvenated everything. But the show where I just find myself really pulled in is Deep Space Nine. And I think that's because I very much love serialized storytelling. And it was the first Trek series that really made an effort to have storylines that went beyond single episodes. Beyond the comics, actually. It's like, yeah. <laughs> comics are very serialized, so yeah, I see the connection yeah. there. Do you have, then, a favorite character from any iteration? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's so many, right? I mean, at this yeah. point, with several dozen main characters. You know, as far as the main characters, it, it, the funny thing is, I don't know that my, my favorite main character is from Deep Space Nine, and I think I'm going to go with the cliche and say Spock, because that I've always loved that character. But from Deep Space Nine, my favorites would be either Odo or Cisco. I should say Ciscoid. Oh, no, no. The, this, I'm, I've never been on the show. But <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like whenever I'm trying to, to say who's my favorite character, when people say, oh, you love Deep Space Nine, because that is my favorite. Who's your favorite character? And I can't generally, it's like they've all each been my favorite character at some yeah. point. So it's kind of hard with that one. And uh, the final question is, what is your favorite Star Trek Species. Well, I'm not going to say human because humans do some pretty awful things. So, wow. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Vulcan-related stories in the original series, but as the, as the shows went on, Vulcans really emerged as some arrogant jerks at times. So I love the Andorian arc on Enterprise. It's one of my favorite things about it. So I'm tempted to say Andorian. I've never given much thought, though, to which is my favorite species. It's a tough question. I think the Klingons are overdone a little bit, but I do love the Klingons. I, I really enjoy their mythology. So it, it would be one of those four, I guess. Well, because there is a question of, like, the Klingons have been explored so much, that makes them richer, but that the, Andor yeah. the Andorians still have mystery to them. There's still, like, so many story potential. Yeah, I, I, when you think back to, the you know, one of the very first ones that, that we met, you know, in Journey to Babel, and you, you, you uh, there's something about this character that you think, well, there's... 
there's a unique way that he speaks and he talks, you know, he, is he a warrior? What is he? He's a diplomat. From that point on, I think the mystique built around them. It was a slow process because it's not like the way they are in Enterprise is how they were depicted on the original series, but the roots of it are, is there. And uh, and I love what the novels did with them, with the, their marriage structure and so forth. I think, I think they're fascinating. All right. Well, let's talk about the collection that you're so involved with. And uh, what is this? First of all, let's just explain to the listeners what this project is all about. The graphic novel collection, um, I believe Ben Robinson is the one who, who came up with the idea, but Eagle Moss produced a, a long-running series of books. It's 150 volumes to date, but it's 1 to 140 and then 10 special issues that uh, were outside the numbering. So 150 in, uh, to date. The goal of which was to present every single Star Trek comic to date. So we're talking the obvious companies, you know, Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Wildstorm, Marvel again, Tokyo Pop, IDW, and if uh, Malibu, I knew I missed one. So that was the goal from the beginning, was to take them all and, and present them. And as someone who collected them all, I can tell you that while a lot of them are not difficult to find, there are some that are very difficult to find in today's market, especially uh, in good shape. So the idea behind the books was subscribe to these books. And every month, you'll receive X number of hardcover volumes that will reprint stories from throughout the run. If this continues long enough, you will never have to buy any of the past issues because you will have all of them. The idea is that on the spine is this ever-extending image, of all, a painting of all of the ships. Now, these images are taken from the interior panels. So over time, you'll start to see a little bit of something show up. And if you wait long enough for the next six, seven issues, you will realize, oh, I'm looking at the Defiant, and that Defiant image was pulled from from a Deep Space Nine comic. So that's the concept. The idea is that, and, and the beauty of that, it really could just keep going. There's always going to be more ships you can add that aren't on there, and IDW is still producing comics. So in theory, it could go on forever. It didn't. <laughs> really, uh, the pandemic, I think, was a large culprit here. Um, but Eagle Moss uh, stopped it as of 140. Behind the scenes, I'm, I'm still pushing to get more, but we'll see. Because I've seen there's like, oh, through 160, the covers do exist or there you know there is already concept art isn't there 141 to 160 is purely a it's a fan project um okay i've never released what the uh what what the order of stories because i had 141 to 160 mapped out um unfortunately it was never produced don't get me wrong i don't mean that dismissively the 141 to 160 fan project is cool because i've been following that on a facebook group and jason who who makes the these covers does an extraordinary job but the order that he's presenting them in is really not how not what we would have done it's his choice because he doesn't you know it, 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 again not dismissively he has no access to <laughs> what the order would have been but i had work we had gotten very close and i was so i was frustrated when it ended because all I needed was one more 20 volume set and we could have actually filled in all the holes. And from that point on, it would have just been doing more volumes based on IDW stories as they came out. We came close, you know, and I, I think that we, I think we did a good job. I love how it looks on a shelf seeing these 140 books with the spine art. It, it's just, it's beautiful. And Paramount Plus is really, they keep creating new shows, which would have right. meant that there would have been comics about those shows, which, I mean, there are. There's no lack of ships that could have, you know, been on those spines eventually. Yeah, I mean, there there are so many. And even if it went on to the point of obscurity, fans love it. This, this is the same company that produces the, the Starship um, right. miniatures collection. And people are really into the ships. So this could have gone on forever with various ships that uh, were lesser known and but still fun to put on there. I, I should also note that their website still has the old, like you can do it piecemeal if you wish. Like for example, if you are someone who really disliked a certain publisher or a certain TV show, you can just order the ones you want from, from Eagle Moss's website. The, pr the problem with that of course, is that you will get one really screwed up looking <laughs> spine art, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it can be done. Is there a, a reason why it's not, I mean, what's the decision behind not making it chronological in terms of so it doesn't start with the gold key issues i i've actually it's funny cause someone recently asked me this why doesn't it and i i, I gave it a lot of thought and i realized even though i wasn't in on it yet in the decision making at that point i think that the, it was the right decision and the reason is this let's assume you go chronologically that means for the first and let's say you you publish six to eight issues per volume well the original series had six uh, gold key had 61 issues four of which were reprints so you're looking at 57 issues. So, you know, you're looking at uh, a lot of volumes for just Gold Key. I love Gold Key. They're fun as hell. 
they also have flames coming out of the back of the Enterprise. So (laughs) if you started off, you know, with 10 or 15 volumes of Just Gold Key, you might they might technically have lost people. Right. It would have been a gamble because they would have been banking on the fact that people who are not familiar with the comics are going to get these and think, oh, this is what Star Trek comics are. Cancel. So that that would have been a big gamble, given the number of volumes that would have been required to do this. And actually, my math is way off when I it would not be eight. Yeah, that'd be 80 volumes. But, uh, you know, you what I, I just realized that six to eight, it would not be 10 volumes. But the point is, it would be a number of volumes in the first couple of sets that would just be gold key. And there's also the fact that not everybody wants to read eight issues of gold key in a row. <laughs> and then there's things like the UK strips. The UK strips came you know, around the same time as Gold Key, they were running concurrently. So if you go chronologically, where do the UK strips fall? Like, do you, because they ran the same time as Gold Key. Uh, Do they run after Gold Key or at the same time? If that's the case, that's even more issues before people get to any really quality storytelling. Um, From that perspective alone, you know, I could see why the decision would have been made. It's kind of like how if you watch Legends of Tomorrow or Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and you think, wow, this show got great, it's a good thing they didn't lose people in that first season. <laughs> uh, and it's the same is true of Star Trek The Next Generation with things like Code of Honor, you know. So so I, I get the reasoning behind it. I think the other thing is it's kind of fun not knowing what's going to come next. Look at DC. I, I hold DC up very high as a standard, but but for anyone who didn't like it, Think about how long they'd only be getting DC volumes. Yeah. Or even just the original series crew. <laughs> right, exactly. What if you're not a fan of Kirk's crew or Picard's crew? There'd be a long stretch where you would only be getting volumes for that. So I think their chances were probably higher of keeping subscribers if they varied the content. And I think back to when I was a child. My mom and I used to were part of a stamp collecting club, and that's a hobby I gave up pretty early on. But at the time, I would get a shipment of stamps in the mail from this club every month. And I, I didn't know what I was going to get. They could be U.S., they could be foreign stamps, they, they could be recent, they could be old. And the fun of it was not knowing. So, you know, I don't fall into the subscriber category because I worked on the books, so I was receiving them anyway. If I were an outsider receiving them, I think I'd probably want them out of order. I get the argument for getting them in order, too, though, because people, oh, yeah, it's not chronological. But I don't know that it would have lasted. I think we might have actually seen it end quickly if it was, you know, 10 or 12 issues of just gold key and UK strips, you know. And the chronology eventually becomes very complicated just because there are IDWs or even Marvel and Malibu. You know, they were publishing... A lot of books concurrently, but different miniseries and, and series were all like competing. You know, it's not difficult to figure out which miniseries started first. And in fact, you know, um, there's Mark Martinez's uh, Star Trek comic checklist site that lists them all in, in the order that they came out. But in the end, you'd still end up with what looks like random story order, right? Because you, you'd still get a Next Generation, then a Deep Space Nine, then a Voyager, then an original series once you got to the IDW run anyway. Talking about uh, IDW, they're publishing now. So what is the licensing agreement here? Because you're, rep- you're reprinting things from companies that no longer exist, from companies that do exist and no longer hold the Star Trek license. IDW holds the Star Trek license. I can offer some interesting insight from before when I, before I joined the Eagle Must team, actually. You may or may not know that I also had previously worked on five Star Trek books for, for IDW. Two books that reprinted comic strips based on the LA Times newspaper strips, and then three books that reprinted the UK strips. So because I was involved in that, I have some insight on, on, on how this works. I happen to have a complete set of both strips, and for many years I was trying to get somebody to reprint them because the, the LA Times strips and the UK strips for the longest time were basically overlooked. Most fans had forgotten they even existed, even if they even knew it. Um, but here was a wealth of material, some good, some not so good, uh, that was waiting to be reprinted and never had been. So I approached going back to the – I think it was Wildstorm. Was it Wildstorm? Yeah, I think it was Wildstorm was the first ones I approached, and then Pocket, and then finally IDW uh, greenlit the idea. The big um, challenge that we faced once IDW said, yes, we're totally into this. Chris Raya actually wrote back to me the same day that I wrote to him and said, good God, yes. (laughs) But we had to do some due diligence first because the question was, who owned them? Chris looked into it with Paramount's lawyers, and what they said was, with Star Trek licensing, the companies that 
license out the product, know going in that Paramount, this is pre, you know, it, it, nobody was calling it really CBS at the time, but Paramount back then in the 70s owned everything if it had a Star Trek license on it. So if it said copyright Paramount pictures on there, then it was legally a licensed product and hence Paramount owned it, not the companies that owned the license. And so as long as this stuff had that copyright on there, IDW was able to reprint. Their license with Paramount allowed them to reprint these strips just like they can reprint stuff from DC and they can reprint stuff from Marvel and so forth. So the license that Eagle Moss had, as I understand it, is basically almost like, a, if you think in apartment terms, a subletting of Eagle Moss's, I mean, of IDW's license, which is why IDW's logo is on all the books right. along with Eagle Moss's. IDW wasn't actively working on the books, but it's allowed through them. And so Eagle Moss now, as a result, has a license to publish anything that was officially published as a Star Trek comic. And that allowed me to do things like to include the Peter Pan books, for example, or uh, the, the Star Trek Happy Meals, things that normally you wouldn't see reprinted, but they were officially produced, which allowed them allowed them to get around the fact that um, they didn't have to ask McDonald's and they didn't have to ask the LA Time strips and wh whoever it is that currently owns the companies that publish these UK materials. I'm well acquainted with all the American comics that were made, all the ones that you mentioned, but you've collected a lot of these, the Italian ones, the, the, you know, the ones from South America, the, uh, the manga. And like you're mentioning like these really obscure ones. Are there little treasures? What are your, some of your favorite little treasures that you put in the collection? There's a few of them. Uh, one of them goes back to when I wrote for The Communicator. My very first Star Trek work actually was an article uh, for Ner Larry Nemechek. I approached him uh, and I was a very young green writer. So I don't know what, how, why I was so ballsy that I <laughs> thought that he'd listen, but he did. Um, saying, hey, um, no one ever you know, writes about the Star Trek newspaper strips. You probably don't even know they existed. Would you like an article about it? And he said, sure. And then I started reaching out to all the writers and artists who had worked on them and amazingly ended up with several of the artists' audition strips that never appeared in the newspapers. Because I had permission then, you know, they said, feel free to reprint them anytime you'd like. So those ended up in both the IDW hardcovers and in the graphic novel collection. If I hadn't reached out to the to those artists fans literally would never have had these so that was one of the cool rarities but then there's other little things like children's comic strips there were um a, a five-part brief adaptation of the motion picture well <laughs> of like five scenes from the motion picture on the sides of um, mcdonald's happy meals in 1979 and then there was a toy in the happy meal called a video communicator that had really really stupid comic strips <laughs> so i happened to have all of those so i threw them in and uh, the um kenner give a show projector had two re equally stupid <laughs> comic strips for kids and i threw those in uh, and then Laramie had two that are just words are indescribable. How it, it, it's it's indescribable how, how how silly these things are, but for me as a collector. Having these toys, the Laramie one, by the way, was a toy called the Star Trek Space Viewer, which was a rack toy. And back then, kids would go in and spend 10 cents, or their parents, I should say, would spend 10 cents and buy them the most horrendously poorly made toys. You would use four times, and they'd break, and you'd throw them out. And that was kind of what they were disposable toys. That was the idea behind it. You'd find them in drugstores and so forth. And one of them was a Star Trek Space Viewer, which was a scrolling toy like the Happy Meal toy that had a really, really pointless comic strips in it and i spent years looking for this thing it's incredibly hard to find um and i managed to find two actually one for me and one for mark martinez but it was really really incredibly hard to find so i said you know what this has to go in because the, the odds are that 99.99 percent of fans are never going to own the space viewer so that went in but then it got even crazier after that because i discovered while while working on the graphic novel collection. And keep in mind, I've been collecting Star Trek comics since the early 80s. So the fact that I discovered a, a comic line existed that I didn't know about within the last few years was amazing. And it was a series of gold key reprints produced only in Brazil. But they were licensed reprints. And the producers, Ed, Ed, um, Editora Abril, did something crazy, which was they produced two new gold key stories that never ran in the U.S. comic. They were drawn and written to look like, to, to come across like gold key material. But because they were thrown in in a, in a licensed product with a Paramount copyright on it, these are officially licensed. 
Star Trek comics that no one knew existed. Uh, and I managed uh, through a friend of mine in Brazil to procure both of the issues that had original materials. He translated them for me to English. I relettered them in English and they went into the graphic novel collection as well. And then a whole bunch of, um, over the years, I, I've made a lot of contacts with writers and artists and editors from the various comic publishers. So I reached out to anyone I knew about who had ever had something that wasn't published that was supposed to be. Either it was canceled or it was rejected. And I, I convinced them to give me a lot of um, a lot of scripts and a lot of artwork for comics that never were that were supposed to be, and those were thrown in as extras. So yeah, there, I have a lot of lot of fun things I was able to work in, and, I, and I'm very proud of that. But it must be challenging as well. Did you ever hit like walls where it seemed like very difficult? Well, the biggest one was when the pandemic started and word came down that we might not go beyond 140. That was that was it turned out an insurmountable wall, but that was the big one. Because I came on at 72, and the series had, I should say I came on as editor at 72. The previous editor had already worked out what would be in 73 to 100. So I was going to be editing those based on a list of stories that had already been worked out. That was not challenging uh, because I now had uh, 28 volumes of lead time to work out what the next batch would be if, if, it, were, uh, if it were approved. So the first wall that I hit was I, I had to go back and look at um, 100 volumes and figure out every single comic that had never been reprinted because they didn't have a list to give me. So I went through every volume and, and I, I created an Excel sheet that listed everything and said what has and hasn't been reprinted, what should be, what has been overlooked, what are what are some things that I don't think they've ever even started to touch on uh and and the first one that came to mind was the peter pan records from power records they'd never been uh included in there and so i said oh that was overlooked so i threw the, i made a point of getting those in there that was the first wall but it was not insurmountable at all i simply put them in the only real wall that i ran into that i could think of was at the 120 mark and at the 140 mark cancellation loomed over me okay you know, you know i guess i have that in common with the original series i'd always had cancellation looming over me a lot of that was because of the pandemic, and a lot of that was because any long-running series is going to have some difficulty in maintaining subscriptions. You know, at this point, at the 100 mark, at the 120 mark, I should, I should note that the books were always renewed in 20-volume sets. That's why I'm saying those numbers. So at the 100 mark, at the 120 mark, at the 140 mark, there was always the danger that fewer people were subscribing than in the beginning, uh, for whatever reason. I know that some of the early volumes, I've been told, had some problems with you know printing problems and so forth and that might have that might have lost but then there's just attrition people run out of money time or interest it's a double-edged sword when you extend a, a collection because if people are willing to invest money to buy 80 books they're probably willing to buy 20 but what if they don't have money beyond the 80 so it's a double-edged sword right you the, the people who bought the first 80 you're probably built in for you know, 100, 120, 140. But you also have people who lose their jobs, end up having kids in the, in the interim, or who realize, who realize, you know, I just woke up Tuesday and realized I hate Star Trek comics. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to sell them and I'm not going to buy any more. And things like this can happen. But it's just the nature of attrition. Over time, you know, you lose people. And I think that was the biggest wall that I faced was knowing that if you look at it as you know 150 volumes, and I came in editor at 72, it was already half done by the point where I started editing. So attrition was the biggest was the biggest obstacle. It's still a very impressive number of books that have come out that you know that have been produced. Are there things that you sorely wish you could have gotten into? Like, are there things that you really feel sorry about? Yes, very much. I had advance word that 120 to one, 121 to 140 was likely going to be the end, and it, it was heartbreaking to hear this. I and the people on, on who worked on it with me really pushed to get it extended, but it, the pandemic hurt a lot of companies and a lot of people. I, I get where they were coming from, but it, it happens, you know. When it did, I, I thought, all right, well, if I'm going into this knowing that 121 to 140 is likely going to be the last, there's no way I can collect everything that's left 
unless all the books were double-sized. There's no way Eagle Moss is going to cancel the series, but then allow me to double their expense. No. It's not, you know, so, so I have to think about what needs to get in here. And I said, well, maybe my goal is going to be complete as many runs as I can with what's left. I, so I figured out what was left that hadn't gone in. Okay, I need to get Power Records in there. I need to complete Wildstorm. I need to complete the uh, the '90s Marvel run. I need to get there's a, there's actually a section of the UK strips that never ran for some reason. I need to get those in there. I need to get Tokyo Pops manga books in there. Oh look, uh, here's the Brazilian ones. They need to get in. Then I can truthfully say at the end we completed Gold Key and Marvel and you know and so forth. So what's left? Then I can go to IDW and say if you give me 141 to 160, here's all I have to get done. But the unfortunate thing is that didn't happen. Because that didn't happen, I ended up with a chunk of DC that never got reprinted. And everything from 2017 forward, I think it's two, I think 2017 was the cutoff on IDW. My reasoning in not including much IDW in that last set was simply that the last decade's worth of IDW comics can be very easily obtained. So I went in the mindset of what would be hardest for these people to find. Balancing that with how many series can I complete? It would be impressive to say we completed all but two of the runs. The unfortunate thing is DC's my favorite run, so it hurt that I couldn't get them all in there. But I think I think I was blindly holding out hope that I'd get another extension. And if I did, I was going to be able to finish the, the, the DC run. The unfortunate thing is that it was the TOS crew that got hurt. It was the second half of DC's second original series run that never made it in, along with a couple of the annuals and so forth. And there's some really good material in there. There's a lot of uh, Howard Weinstein, Kevin Ryan. That era didn't make it in. And Ryan's work is great. Weinstein's work is great. I would have loved to have worked all that in. Couldn't do it. Uh, also, as I would have loved to just... I mean, I wanted it to be complete. Even if 160 ended up being the end, I wanted to walk away saying I'd gotten everything in there. So it still rankles a little bit that I didn't get the modern day IDW stuff in there. But that to me is lesser simply because I know fans can get their hands on that very easily. If we talk about favorite eras of the Star Trek comics, you've just mentioned that, you know, Star Trek Volume 2 from DC as a highlight. Is that your favorite era of the comics? Are there others? Well, DC in general, I, I loved almost everything that DC did. I think that, that they had such a great handle on the comics. Um, and I know a lot of people hold them up as a high standard. I, I remember I, I got into it, into comics, uh, Star Trek comics, only nine issues into DC's first run because I happened to walk through a store. I saw issue number nine, which was the first issue of DC's Mirror Mirror sequel. And I got pulled in immediately. So I have a real soft spot for that first DC run above everything else. I I, can, I don't even know how many times I've reread it because it's what got me into it. Because they, they did things that the previous publishers simply hadn't, which was ongoing storylines, sequels, tons of sequels to TV episodes, introducing new ongoing characters. You know, And, and so I had a great affinity for it. But I also really like Malibu's Deep Space Nine and several of the series from Marvel's second run, particularly Untold Voyages from Glenn Greenberg, the early Voyages, the Pike Era series, and Starfleet Academy. Those three really just were amazing series to me. Uh, it kills me that, that the latter two were never completed when Marvel dropped the license. Uh, so they had dangling plot points. But really, look, I, I, I point out those three publishers, but the truth is – much like with the Star Trek TV shows, there's never been a Trek publisher of comics that I haven't enjoyed. And that includes the really ridiculous UK strips and Gold Key. I don't care. I, I have a lot of fun with them. And I think IDW has done some extraordinary work in recent years. I, You know, it's funny. I, I really love IDW's um, Kelvin Universe stories. And I know that that's divisive, but... Uh, Mike Johnson just did an amazing job of taking these three movies and turning them into a much better landscape than they were in the movies. Yeah, I agree. And, and I, I also have a lot of affection for for those Marvel series because they went, like they expanded the universe. Very much so. They were doing what 
Paramount Plus is doing today on TV, which is creating other shows that are sort of sequels or totally new things set in different eras. Yeah. yeah. Well said. That's a good way of looking at it because, you know, back then it was just astounding that we got a Pike show and a show about Starfleet Academy, right? That was just amazing. And a, and a comic that featured no characters from either crew, just a Romulan crew being assimilated by the Borg. I mean, th back then, this sort of thing was just unheard of in the comics. Now, CBS All Access does it weekly. <laughs> back then, it was a pretty extraordinary achievement. So, I mean, you've read a lot of Star Trek. Uh, you've, you've read them all. Uh, so, so, so what does that top view tell you about the franchise and how it adapts to the comics medium. Do you have like a favorite way of doing it? I mean, to say like likenesses versus looser art, you know, more interpretative art or? I'm a writer and editor, uh, so I, I'm very much into story. Likenesses also matter to me. I mean, if, if a comic is poorly drawn, it stands out as a disappointment. But here's the thing. I, I am far more likely to enjoy a comic that's not well drawn but is well written than I am a comic that's badly written but well drawn. Uh, and, and a great example of that would be the UK strips. Some of them are beautifully drawn, but they are so ridiculous. One of the early stories has Kirk teaching alien gorillas how to play soccer. It's a, you know, it's hilarious, but it's ridiculous, right? It, you know, even if you manage to take that art and reproduce it with like Drew Struzan quality gorillas, it would still be Kirk teaching alien gorillas how to play soccer. And so. For me, the, the writing is paramount more than the art. But I also know it's a visual medium. Without the art, it's prose. So I think that what makes a great Star Trek comic, from a writing standpoint, it's if it's based on original uh, characters from TV, do they ring true? And I've written some licensed fiction. I know that that's a challenge as a writer to make sure that every character's voice is authentic and that the, the storylines sound like – come off as something that realistically would happen in that universe. Like – But here's the thing about this. You, that last point is so flexible because there's a holodeck. So you really can do any story. You can do a King Arthur story in Star Trek if you wish to. Really what it comes down to, I, I'm not big on having constraints on storyline. I like the idea when, when writers expand and try things that haven't been done. There's a, a Voyager comic called um, Avalon Rising, which falls into that category. It's, it's an unusual comic. It's, but, but the show itself you know, had Beowulf and, and so forth. There's so much potential for um, doing storylines in comics that you you wouldn't necessarily pursue on television, either for budgetary reasons or because you you could bring back 28 different characters and you'd have to pay them a ridiculous amount of money on television versus in a comic. Because like the comics, yeah, can do much more visually than the, than the shows that you know at a fraction of the budget, but also they have to deal with an evolving universe very often so uh, i remember the dc runs it's like in between movies this is what happens yeah. and then the movie contradicts the comics you know it's like oh we've got like a couple years of comics and then the next movie comes out and it's taking place five minutes after the last one <laughs> leaving little room for those stories so writers had to You know, juggle that as well. And, you know, I'll say I think they did an extraordinary job. And I think part of the reason that that first DC series is so highly regarded is for that re very reason. Specifically, what you mentioned about, like, a movie seemingly negating what came before. When Star Trek III ends, we see our, our heroes in, in, in self-imposed Vulcan exile and Spock's mind in turmoil. Well, that's a problem if you're telling an ongoing comic because you, ca you can't spend the next two or three years waiting for Star Trek IV with Kirk and company just sitting around eating plomeek soup while Spock wanders around saying, Bones, your name is Bones. Scotty, your name is Scotty. Like, there has to be a story. So, by necessity, DC only had two choices. Well, they had three choices, really. One, cancel the comic. That would have been bad. Two, ignore the film and just have the characters running around on an enterprise that no longer existed. But that would have been a problem because it, people would have said, well, this doesn't make any sense, which is what we just spent the last decade saying about Gold Key and Marvel half the time. But, but the choice that they made was a really interesting one, which was, all right, what can we do to keep the story going from how Star Trek three ended and then just cross our fingers that in two or three years, once we're told what the next movie is going to be, find a way to get it back to the beginning of that. Well, the next movie, as it happens, starts off with our heroes in self-imposed Vulcan exile and Spock still being retrained. So, 
it was a challenge, you know, but somehow they managed to do it by having uh, by having Kirk piss off Starfleet yet again and going back to Vulcan and Spock's mind unraveling due to a virus. You know, some might say, well, okay, that was cheesy. I say, no, that was great. The ex- it's all in the execution, and and it worked. And so in my head canon, there's a whole series of stories between Star Trek Three and Star Trek Four, during which Spock was in command of the USS Surak and Kirk commanded the Excelsior, and I refuse to say that that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I, they had a fourth option, which would have been to only tell flashback stories. Set it during original series, for yeah, example. Yeah, there are a couple yeah. of those in the run uh, at some points, but... Yeah, so Star Trek canon is, I mean, is a thing of parts where they don't consider, nobody considers the novels or the comics necessarily canonical. I look at it this way. Star Trek, as we know, is a multiverse. And people will say, okay, well, there's the mirror universes, the Kelvin timeline, but they forget that there's an infinite number of universes. And in fact, errors have gone back to the very beginning. Just ask James R. Kirk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, there was so much magic in the animated series and it's like right. oh. even things like the alternative factor there's an antimatter universe you know so there's there have been multiple universes going back to the beginning of star trek Worf ended up in an infinite number of them i mean there, there's just there's so many so i say i don't really care about canon and that's overstating it it's not that i don't care i mean i don't want to see the tv show claim that kirk lived in the 28th century that would be ridiculous but I think that canon is far less important important than a really simple question. Do I enjoy this? That's always been my barometer. So uh, does Gold Key fit the, the TV series? Not really, no. I mean, there's just so much about the series that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, you know, a cross-section of the ship, it looks like it has five decks. <laughs> you know, or the fact that it constantly lands on planets or goes to other galaxies. So, you know what? It's another universe. That's all that matters. It, there you go. Boom. Problem solved. It's a, it's a multiverse. And both Dayton Warden and, and, and Kevin Dilmore, John Byrne, in two different comics, have done stories that have jokingly referenced uh, the fact that things like the animated series or the Gold Key uh, in, in, in New Visions and Waypoint, both from IDW, occupy areas of the comics that at some point people said, wait a minute, does this fit? It's just another way of looking at it. You know, that to, for me, it works. You know, so somewhere out there, there's a universe in which all of the novels, there's, there's like five or six different fates, for example, for, for the, uh, the Romulan commander from the Enterprise incident. So that's five or six different universes right there. <laughs> you know, I forget one of the early um, pocketbooks, I forget which, has Spock like a couple decades older than Kirk, which wouldn't make any sense given that his mother was Amanda Grayson and she wasn't a hundred at the time of the original series. So, okay, there's a universe somewhere where that's true, right? So for me, anytime that the novels and comics get contradicted or contradict each other, because they're, that's one of the things I talk about in my weekly column is that the publishers don't always acknowledge what the previous publishers did. In fact, they more often they don't. And so if you do a, a trip back to uh, you know, Sigma Iosha, for example, it doesn't take into account what happened to the gangsters the last time we saw them. Okay, so that's two different universes. And that's how I take the novels and comics and never have a problem with them. I mean, unless they're just bad, you know, then I have a problem with them. But in terms of conflict, it's a multiverse. There you go. Somewhere the prize actually does shoot flames out the back. And somewhere it regularly goes to other universes. And somewhere... Kirk refers to his crew as my boys. <laughs> and everybody wears green shirts, you know, like somewhere that's that's true. Or the UK strips where the writer and artist on the UK strips were given only one episode. They'd never seen it because it hadn't even aired in, in the England yet. So they were apparently given the corpomite maneuver because they thought David Bailey was a member of the crew. So he's in multiple storylines. <laughs> so there's some universe where David Bailey was a main cast member in, in multiple adventures. The Power Records, isn't it, where Mares has a completely different look? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a universe out there where Uhura is white and Sulu is black, and Mares kind of looks like uh, an Orion. <laughs> 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 so, you know, who knows? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say. 
<laughs> I, I think, I mean, you're very positive about the Star Trek comics. I've loved a lot of them as well. I think they're a worthy part of the franchise. And, and I know it's, it, many of these series are beloved because people who listen to this show have written in and, and mentioned them. And I, I think there's still a readership out there for this. Well, I think the fact that, um, that IDW has had the license for more than a decade and is still going strong proves your point. I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're producing a lot. They've produced more than 300 issues at this point. Wow. So they've produced a lot. Wow. Yeah, yeah, like Year Five and and all the the Kelvin stuff and Alien Spotlights and little like all these little stories. Of what was Khan doing on that planet and this and that? There's a lot to discover. Things that other publishers haven't done. Much like we were saying with Marvel Second Run, IDW has done things you wouldn't expect, like putting Kirk and Spock at the at the center of a zombie horde. You know, <laughs> so they've they've done things that you, you wouldn't expect, or like you you just pointed out. A story about what happened to Khan between Space Seed and Wrath of Khan, which is interesting because back when CBS All Access uh, was announced, one of the things we had heard was that Nick Meyer was going to be doing a Khan story. I've I loved that IDW comic, so I've always been curious, you know, what Meyer's Khan story was going to be, but alas, it didn't happen. We tell people check out this collection. Check out Star Trek comics wherever you can find them, and uh, and maybe read more that Rich Handley has has written. So maybe you could uh, tell us where people can find you if uh, if they're looking for more of your comic book wisdom. Sure, I don't know if it's wisdom, but <laughs> but they can try. <laughs> I have a website, richhandley.com, and the last name is H A N D L E Y. Richhandley.com, uh, where I have a gallery of all my books, and I have a blog where I post links to stuff I've written. Right now, my my current focus is on, on the, the column for Hero Collector, the Star Trek Comics Weekly. But I also do things I, like I write for uh, ATB Publishing's Outside In series. And Me too. I've got a couple. <laughs> oh, there you go. So we're, we're, we're collaborators. Who knew? <clears throat> I think I've done 10 of those to date, and I, I'm in a couple more that are coming out. I've edited a number of anthology essay anthologies for Sequart uh, on various topics. And so, you know, you, you can find me doing stuff for them. The gallery of covers is up there at, uh, at richhenley.com, and my blog announces anything new I'm working on. All right. Thanks again, Rich. Thank you. I appreciate the it. The adventure continues. And I'm sure you have something else to write, so I'll let you get back to it, and I'll stick around for Subspace Transmissions. That's Star Trek News and your feedback on our previous episode. Welcome, one and all, to the Fire and Water Racetrack and Arena. Please direct your attention to the center of the track where you will see 36 buses lined up between two ramps, a tank full of live man-eating sharks and a high wire stretching over it all. The rocket cycle is warmed up and all the nets have been removed. Who would attempt these stunts just to entertain and inspire his audience? What kind of man? What kind of hero? There, coming in on a rocket-powered skateboard, it's the death-defying human flycast! Join me, Max Romero, and a rotating roster of guests as we dive headfirst into the colorful comics of Marvel's The Human Fly. The death-defying Human Fly cast is a limited episode podcast spotlighting the adventures of a man who comes back from a crippling auto accident to become a mysteriously masked stuntman with a mission to inspire others to never give up hope. We'll also talk about the real-life Human Fly, a daredevil with a murky past and a desire to be the best stuntman in history until the day he just disappeared. The actual human fly would vanish as suddenly as he had materialized, but not before sparking a comic series featuring what would be the wildest superhero ever. Because he was real! The death-defying human fly cast. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's gonna be wild. Incoming subspace transmissions. I guess it's award season. Star Trek Discovery has won three awards from the Canadian Alliance of Film and Television Costume Arts and Design. Of the six they were nominated for, Best Costume Design in TV Sci-Fi Fantasy, Excellence in Crafts Building, and Excellence in Crafts Special Effects Costume Building. All four early Season 3 episodes. Meanwhile, the Motion Picture Sound Editor's Golden Reel Awards gave out a Golden Reel to Star Trek Picard for Outstanding Achievement in Sound Editing, Episodic Long Form, Effects Foley, a tie with Queen's Gambit. 
I realize these categories are very granular. Paramount Plus has been rather cagey about its plans for a Section 31 series. Michelle Yeoh has recently said that the franchise has plans for her character, noticeably without referencing Section 31. So, have plans in fact changed? More recently, Shazad Latif, who played Ash Tyler on the first two seasons of Discovery, and long expected to be part of an S31 series, talked about slight rumblings. It seems it could still go forward, and producers are making sure key actors continue to be available, but Michelle Yeoh is in such high demand these days. If you look at her IMDb page, she has a dozen projects either filming or in post-production, including James Cameron's Avatar sequels, that they may just be waiting on her availability. So don't hold your breath, kids. Since we talked about Star Trek comics in this episode, let's mention some comics news. IDW is wrapping up its Year 5 series uh, this summer, and it's launching The Mirror War to replace it on the schedule. The publisher has had a lot of success with its TNG Mirror Universe stories, so The Mirror War is a year-long series starring Mirror Picard and crew, it's actually eight issues plus four spin-off specials, the first of which will be a number zero launch in August, followed by a Mirror Data special in December. And now a selection of your comments on our previous episode, Kirk Fu with guest Jared Albrecht. Ryan Daly picked up on the similarity between Jared's combat teaching style and my improv teaching style. He says, now I want to see Jared teach how do you defend yourself from Robert De Niro trying to buy a car from Jerry Seinfeld. Chris Franklin drank the Kool-Aid. What? No love for the wall jump? Kirk invented parkour. Seriously, though, yeah, some of this is just silly, but looks fun on film. But lots of 60s TV is full of this. I think there was just enough knowledge of kung fu and karate, terms used interchangeably by folks who didn't know better, to upgrade from the old-fashioned Western punch-em-up style. They rarely got it right, but they were trying. There is a funny anecdote about this in Shatner's Star Trek Memories autobiography. He tells of how during the show's run, he was at a carnival with his daughters, and a large man treated the girls rudely. Shatner said he seriously contemplated unleashing his Kirk flying dropkick, and then realized he'd land prone on his back if he did that, and thought better of it. So, even at the time, he knew it was ridiculous. Paul Hicks reveals, This explains why Jared defeated me so easily that time. I did enjoy being held tightly as I lost consciousness. <laughs> Captain Entropy thinks we missed one, namely the Tomo Nage sacrifice throw he learned in judo class and which the instructor specifically called the Captain Kirk. He adds, It's super easy. You do end up on the ground, but it's still a better position than your opponent. And let's be realistic. Judo is a grappling art. If you're in a judo dojo, you're going to the ground eventually. You might as well get it over with. To which I answer, uh, if it's judo, then it's not Kirk Fu. I'm going to no-prize this by saying Kirk learned more than one martial art at the academy or during his career. And in fact, judo is what he's teaching Charlie X in the episode I referenced with a clip at the top of the show. Lizanne Oswald also mentions the step-forward palm strike. And all I can say is, you know, we had to make choices for time and couldn't include everything in the canon. Nord admits he once kicked a punching bag with both legs. The floor never saw it coming. Rob McCarthy has a strategy. He says, like most untrained guys in a wheelchair, I have two moves. One, nut punch. Two, pray hard. Rob, I think that's a good one for most untrained fighters. As for trained fighters, Tim Price says, when I first started studying Taekwondo, one of the students, a spry 40-year-old, would often do Kirk rolls when sparring, which is not an authentic Taekwondo technique. I think he just liked doing it, and I don't blame him. Jared's assessment is right on the money, in my humble opinion, from my training and excellent pod listening. Thanks for the great episode. Well, the Fire & Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. If you like this content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or a monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list, like Diplomatic Liaison, Doug Venn Diver. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. And as usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire & Water Facebook page, or on Twitter, where we are, FW Podcast. You can also follow the show on Spotify. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. <laughs> <laughs>